0: and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Today our focus is on Jesus. What do terms like Son of God, Christ, and Messiah really mean? How does Jesus fit into the promises God made to King David a millennium before his birth? As you recall last time, that's what we looked at was the promises God made to David. So we're going to look at how Jesus fits into there. And Victor Gluckin will answer these questions about Son of God, Christ, Messiah, through copious text from the New Testament. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no question in what he's sharing here in this episode. It is so well documented that I don't think any Christian group could possibly disagree with it. And he's going to drive home the point that Jesus' primary identifier— is Messiah. That's God's anointed one to rule on the throne of David. Here now is episode 430, Son of David, part two, Jesus, the Christ, Son of David, Son of God.
1: As we turn to the New Testament, I just want to talk about this idea of being the Son of God. There are different usages of the phrase Son of God in the Bible. It is used to refer to angels, men, and as we have just seen, the Davidic heir or the Messiah. However, looking over the biblical story, when someone is called the Son of God or refers to themselves as the Son of God, they're not just saying that they're a child of God in the sense of all humans as God's creation are all sons and daughters of God. This idea of being the Son of God is not what is meant when believers in the New Testament are called sons and daughters or children of God. In those cases, when you and I are called sons or daughters of God, that doesn't mean you're going to rule on David's throne forever. Don't get your hopes up. There's good news for us, but that's not what it is. That's talking more about God as our Heavenly Father, and thus we're His children. When you and I are called the sons and daughters of God, or the children of God, that's talking about relationship. But in contrast, being the Son of God, you're not talking about relationship as you are as much talking about titles and identity. Let me give you an example. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, the tempter, the devil, comes to Jesus and said to him, If you are the what? The Son of God, command that these stones become bread. That's not the same thing as when Jesus said, In Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. That's talking about relationship with us as peacemakers being like God, who is a God of peace and who makes peace. But when the devil calls Jesus out and says, if you're the son of God, he's talking about what we just talked about. He's talking about if you really are the Christ, if you're really God's son, the promised king. When Jesus is referred to as the son of God, that's a messianic title. And so I want our brains, I want our church's brains, when we read Jesus is the Son of God, I want you to think about that Davidic covenant. Just like Jesus' his last name is in Christ, that's a title, meaning that he's the Messiah, right? Because after all, Christ is another word for Messiah, which comes from the Hebrew word... Too much. I'm overwhelming us a little too much with this Hebrew here, right? Mashiach. This idea of Son of God means the same thing. To be the Son of God means that you are the potential heir to the throne of David. Now, if you're the Son of God and the Son of David, you are the heir. And if you're the Son of David and the Son of God, then you're a candidate to be king forever, meaning you're the Messiah or Christ. And so that's what we see happen in the New Testament. It all comes together in Jesus. So we're going to look at some verses in the New Testament we're going to blitz through them, and I want to sort of, again, like I said, I want, when you think of Son of God or when you think of Christ or you hear Son of David refer to uh, about Jesus, I want you to think about this promise, this messianic promise, this messianic hope, this Davidic covenant. The first verse of the New Testament is Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and it says this. This is the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ The son of David. The very first verse in the New Testament identifies Jesus as Christ and the son of David. And then it goes into everybody's favorite thing in the Bible, a genealogy. But this is why genealogies are important. Because as you make your way through the genealogy, you get to verse 6, where it says, Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba who had been the wife of Uriah. So it starts out with Jesus, the son of David, and then it lists his genealogy, and along the way in his genealogy, David is listed as one of his great-great-great-grandfathers. And then it ends in verse 16 where it says, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the what? The Messiah. So the genealogy of Jesus is intended to declare that biologically through Mary, and legally through Joseph, his adoptive father, Jesus is related to David. He's a son of David. Literally, biologically and legally, Jesus of Nazareth, who was born of Mary, is a son of David. So we're we're on our way here. And he's also literally the son of God, because guess who his father really was? It was God. As I said in our last segment, the writers of the New Testament, one of their goals is to identify that Jesus of Nazareth is this promised son of David, son of God, who will be the king forever. And I think what's going to happen tonight is you're going to look at verses that you've read before and go, Oh, and that's encouraged. If you get a little bit of an O tonight, go ahead, be free and say, Oh, okay. All right." In Luke chapter 1, verse 30, this is where Gabriel comes to Mary. And verse 30 of chapter 1, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Jesus, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of who? Did you ever know that was in the birth announcement? In the Christmas story itself, when Jesus is being named by Gabriel to Mary, Gabriel says, look, the child is going to be named Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high, the son of God. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob. How long? Okay, so in these two verses of the Christmas story, We have the Son of God who will rule on David's throne, who will be the king forever. His kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? Great question. Verse 35, the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High, the power of God will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the what? Okay, this is where you all go, oh, right? So in Gabriel's message to Mary, Jesus is named and is told that he will be the son of the most high. He will rule on the throne of his father, David. His kingdom will have no end and he will be literally the son of God because the Holy Spirit will overshadow Mary and supernaturally conceive Jesus in her womb so that when he's born... Joseph ain't had anything to do with it. God is literally Jesus' father. That's amazing. During Jesus' life and ministry, he is recognized as the son of God and the son of David. He's called and he claimed to be the Messiah. All of this means that he's claiming to be that promised one who will rule forever and fulfill the Davidic covenant. Let's look at another verse in chapter 2. This is when the angel now goes to the shepherds. And in verse 10 of chapter 2, the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of who? David, David. There has been born for you a Savior who is Christ, the Messiah, the Lord. So let me tell you what we're talking about here. Jesus is born And the angels go to the shepherds and say, hey, guys, we've got good news. Remember what everybody's been waiting for, that little flickering light that everybody thought went out? Guess what? I've got great news of great joy. The coming of Jesus is great news, great joy, because in the city of David, where people who are related to David are born, the Messiah is born. And the angels have a party and run to see Jesus. Jesus born in a manger. This is what was announced when Jesus was born. We, we know the famous Christmas carol, The First Noel, right? The first Noel the angels did say Was to certain poor shepherds in fields as they lay In fields where they lay keeping their sheep Night that was so deep. Noel, 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 Noel. Here we go. Born is the King of Israel. And we go, wait, what are we singing around Christmas time? We're singing about the birth of Jesus who the song proclaims from the scriptures is the king of Israel. The king of Israel is David's descendant. This is what Jesus is being spoken of. Zechariah's prophecy in your notes from Luke 1, 68 through 70. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. He has sent us a mighty savior from the royal line of his servant David just as he promised through the holy prophets long ago. So, you see, the early believers who were informed about Jesus' birth got what a big deal this was. That it wasn't just a good moral teacher who's going to start a new religion, but it was the promised Messiah, the King of Israel, the Son of David, the one who's going to rule on the throne of his father David forever, who will fulfill Isaiah 9 and 11 who will rule forever with peace and justice and there won't be an end to his kingdom. And so the New Testament writers are going to take a lot of effort to connect this Old Testament hope and promise of the son of David with Jesus of Nazareth. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to look at some of these verses and I'm going to need you to help me fill in the blank. I need you to get your pencils and your pens ready because when we read these verses on your notes, I want you to circle the relevant terms that you're gonna say. Are you ready? A few people are ready. We need to get ready here. It's 8 30 on a Monday. We're talking about the Mashiach. John one, verse 49. Nathaniel answered him, Jesus, and said, Rabbi, you are the what? The Son of God. You are the King of Israel. The crowds wonder who Jesus is in John 7. And it says that some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, his teaching, they're saying, this is certainly the prophet. Others were saying, no, no, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, sure, the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Jesus grew up in Galilee, but where was he born? Well, he was born in Bethlehem which is the city of David. Now, the people didn't know that, but that's all right. They didn't have the inside info like we do. And so they say, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the what? The descendants of David. And from Bethlehem, the village where David was. So the early people that are seeing Jesus and listening to his ministry, they're saying, maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe he's the Christ. Well, if he is, he needed to be from Bethlehem, because that's where the Messiah was going to be born. John 4 The Samaritan woman said to him, I know that the what? Messiah is coming. He who is called the, you see the connection? John gave us some help here. The Messiah and the Christ are the same thing. When that one comes, he will declare to us all the things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The woman goes, I know when the Messiah comes, he'll be able to tell us everything. And Jesus goes, lady, you're looking at him. He claims to be that Messiah. When he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Matthew 16. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some people say that he's John the Baptist and others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, And what does Simon Peter say? He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. When Peter has the chance to answer the question, who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus? Who do you say that I am? Peter's answer is, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I would say that he answered the right way, right? In Matthew 12, 22 and 23, a demon-possessed man who was blind and could not speak was brought to Jesus. He healed the man so that he could both speak and see. The crowd was amazed, and they say, could it be that Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah? When Jesus healed someone, the crowds that were around there said, could it be that he is the son of David, the Messiah? Because someone that does a great miracle like that and is healing blind people and lepers, man, maybe this is the one we've been waiting for. Matthew 5.22 says the same thing. Matthew 20.30, and two blind men sitting by the road hearing that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us. What? Son of David. Jesus is walking and the people know that he can heal. And when he walks by, they say, Son of David, have mercy on us. Who do you say that he is? This is what the church needs to answer. Peter was asked, who do you say that I am? Well, so far all the crowds and his disciples and the leaders around him are saying, he might be the Messiah. He might be that son of David. He might be that son of God. And he is. During his trial and suffering in Luke 22, the Sanhedrin, the court that was convened, they say, if you're the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. And so they said, are you the son of God then? That wasn't a different question than are you the Christ? They're asking, okay, just tell us, are you the son of God? Because if you're the son of God, that means you're also the what? The Christ, which is another word for Messiah, which comes from the Hebrew word. We're getting there. A couple people over here. I'm feeling this side of the room tonight. Okay. <laughs> Are you the son of God then? And he said to them, yes, I am. The high priest during Jesus' trial, Matthew 26, Jesus kept silent and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the son of God, because if you're the son of God, you're the Christ. Son of God means more than just God being your father. It's a title which is equivalent to being the Christ, the son of David, the one who's going to be the king forever. And that was the real question that he was on trial for. That's the question that the leaders were asking him. Because if he was the Christ, if he was the son of God, then they wanted to know because they wanted him to take over. And they didn't like what they saw. In fact, the purpose of the entire gospel of John is summed up at the end in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. When John writes, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written. The gospel of John has been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the what? The Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Isn't that interesting? That's why John wrote his book, because he wanted the the early Christians and the people of the time, and for us Generations later to come to the conclusion that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was indeed the Christ, the son of God, the son of the living God, as Peter said. As Paul comes on the scenes and the early church is now spreading this gospel, it says in Acts 9, verse 20, that immediately he, the newly converted Paul, began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the what? He's the son of God. This is what Paul was out preaching, that Jesus was the son of God. Romans, the great epistle to the church, Romans 1, verses 1 through 4. This is how Romans starts. People that have been in this church for a while, I want you to get up your, oh, when I'm done with this. Because this is Romans. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born a descendant of what? David. David, according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with the power of the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how Romans opens up. He's like, hey guys, I'm going to talk to you. Thank you. I'm going to talk to you about what the prophets have been prophesying about about this one who was born a descendant of David who was declared to be the son of God who is that we're talking about Jesus Christ our lord because Paul believed that Jesus was the son of David and the son of God and he was going to be the king forever and he believed it so much that he completely transformed his whole life and go out to start speaking that this Jesus was indeed that Christ he told us in 2 Timothy 2 verse 8 Always remember that Jesus Christ, a descendant of David, was raised from the dead. This is the good news I preach. And we'll look at two more in Revelation. Revelation chapter 5, this is the vision in the end. And look what John sees. He says, I saw a scroll in the right hand of one who was sitting on the throne. And there was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll. And it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. And this was a strong angel. But then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. But one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah the heir to David's throne has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb that looked like it had been slaughtered but was now standing between the throne and the four living beings among the, four, among the 24 elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes which represent the seven-souled spirits of God that he sent out in every part of the earth. And he stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song with the words, you are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you, this lamb that was slain, who was the Heir to David's throne, the lion of the tribe of Judah, have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign on the earth. Verse 13, verse 12, And they sang a mighty chorus, Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered, to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And they, then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea, And they sang blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the who? The lamb forever and ever. And the four living beings said, amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped the lamb. This is quite the scene in heaven where this lamb steps forward and is able to open up the seal and the lamb is identified as the one who is the descendant of David. And heaven and earth start freaking out in praise. Because Jesus, who is the descendant of David, is able to have victory and overcome. And all the angels and the elders in heaven, they bow down and they say, Worthy is the lamb that was slain. I mean, this is cause for celebration amongst the angels. Because the one that they had been waiting for who was going to have victory and defeat the devil and bring God's people back and have blood that would cleanse them has done it. And who is it? It's Jesus, the lamb that was slain, who Revelation says is the heir to David's throne. You see, even when you get to Revelation, this promise to David hasn't gone away. It hasn't gone away. The heir to David's throne who is going to have a kingdom who will rule forever. And, and look at the, some of the final words of Jesus in the New Testament, Revelation 22. He says, I, Jesus... These are some of the last words recorded of Christ in the scriptures before the book is closed. And he says, I have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. And here's how he identifies himself. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright and morning star. That's so cool. So what does this all mean? Well, it means that when Jesus comes back to the earth, he's going to sit on the throne of David And rule as king forever. Because Jesus is the son of David. And he's the son of God. And he's the Christ and the Messiah. And as such, he will rule how long? Amen. Let's go to Jeremiah. We'll finish up tonight in Jeremiah. The purpose of looking at all those verses is to show that the New Testament is filled with this language. The Christian scriptures as opposed to the Hebrew scriptures that are so often separated, are filled with this idea of a son of David that we're waiting for and a son of God. And to be the son of God means that you're this Messiah. And over and over and over again. I mean, some of you are like, all right, we got it after like, like the first few verses. I left a lot of them out. I left a lot of them out. But the point of it is, is that even when you turn to the New Testament, there's this longing and this hope and this expectation, and now there's an identification with who the son of David, who's also the son of God, actually is, and it's Jesus. Remember what I said earlier. I said that if you're the son of David, you're a candidate to be the king. If you're the son of God and the son of David, you're the guy. And that's who Jesus was, and that's who Jesus is. And so that means he's going to rule forever. And thankfully, he's still alive, so he can do the job. And that'd be all right with me. So awesome. Jeremiah chapter 33 is written in a time where it seemed like this wasn't going to happen. It seemed like it had been so long since David was ruling. David was long dead, and Solomon was long gone, and the kings that came after him, some of them were good, some of them were bad. And so Jeremiah receives this vision and this word from the Lord, which is so important for us as the people of God to hold on to today. And it says in verse 14, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will. Fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Verse 19, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night so that day and night will not be at their appointed time, then my covenant may also be broken with David my servant so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne. Did you hear what the Lord just said yeah. about the specific promise that he made to David? He said that if you can break the promise that I've made to the sun to rise each day and set it the same and to come up again each day, then you can break the promise I've made to David. Again, this is said at a time when there was no Davidic king ruling on the throne, just like there isn't one now. But God said that if you can break my covenant with the day and with night, then my covenant with David will be broken too. Go ahead. Give it a shot. Verse 22. As the hosts of heaven cannot be counted and the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites, the priests who minister to me. Verse 25. Thus says the Lord. He says it again. If my covenant for day and night stand not, And the fixed patterns of heaven and earth I have not established. Then I would reject the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant, and not taking from his descendants rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. What a promise we have. That God ties this promise for this king who will rule forever with the sun and the moon, that if you can break his covenant with the sun to rise each day, then you may have a shot at breaking it. But if you can't, then you're not going to break his covenant with David. That's how sure this promise to have a son of David who will be the son of God, who will rule forever in righteousness and justice and peace, is God has swore that it will happen and now he's doubling it up by saying, look, This is so sure, it's as sure as the sun rising up. Many have spiritualized the promise of the Davidic covenant in regards to Jesus. They think that because he didn't come and reign as king, that maybe God had a better plan, a a spiritual ruling in the hearts of his followers. And they suggest that the early followers of Jesus may have been misguided or misunderstood about what Jesus really came to do. And while there is an element of partial and spiritual fulfillment of this promise in a way for the people of God now, these promises will literally, literally come to pass at the return of Jesus to the earth. Otherwise, the literal promise made to David, which the Lord himself has tied to the rising of the sun, will not be fulfilled. Instead of trying for us to reinterpret the great covenant to David fulfilled in Jesus, Instead, we can experience the partial fulfillment now with Jesus as our King, and the full and true fulfillment when Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of David, returns to the earth as King of kings and Lord of lords. We know that God's promise to have a King ruling forever still stands. And when you are having the worst day, and when trouble seems surrounding you all around, and when there's loss and when people you love have died and when there's difficulty in your family or in your your home life or at your job or your body starts to grow weary and tired, just look outside. Because if the sun's up, you can know and trust that God's word is sure and that Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of David, will come and rule. Next week, We are going to talk about Solomon's ascent to the throne, the first son of David, Solomon, who became king. And we're also going to talk about the most dramatic and public act of Jesus' claim to be the Messiah. And we'll do that next week.
0: Well, that brings this episode to a close. What did you think? Come on over to org and find episode 430, part two of our Son of David class, and leave your feedback there. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Also, on episode 408, Christ Before Creed's book with Jeff Dibel, an interview I did with the Australian pastor who wrote this excellent book, somebody named Jerry wrote in saying, I applaud the desire to get back to original or primitive Christianity. However, this presumes there was an homogeneous set of Christian beliefs before they were corrupted in the 2nd to 4th centuries. Unfortunately, this is not true, and there was division from the get-go, especially between Paul and his followers, versus Yahushua, I think he means Jesus there, Peter, James, John, True apostles and their followers. This parting of the ways is already present in the New Testament itself, first century AD. There is no pure, early, uncontested, homogeneous set of beliefs or understandings. The above two groups are polar opposites. Paul and, I'm just going to say Jesus, Paul and Jesus disagree. One cannot assume. The Bible canon we've inherited from the Catholic Church is the flawless, inerrant, infallible, inspired Word of God. Each book and author and translation must be critically evaluated to see if it vets as Scripture. I have not read Jeff Dibel's book yet, but he is throwing both these very different first century groups into one presumably harmonious camp. I would definitely have to object. The book of James is a perfect example But the impulse to try to understand who Jesus was before the creeds is certainly necessary and praiseworthy. It's just there may be more than one answer. Wow, what a perspective to come from, Jerry. Uh, Thanks, and by the way, this is Jerry with a G. But thanks for writing in. I did want to interact with this point of view a little bit here because I have seen it before, mostly among Messianic Jewish groups where they, in their zeal to keep the law, as Gentiles to keep the law, they run aground against uh, the Apostle Paul's writings, especially Galatians and Romans and then Hebrews, whoever happened to have written that. And so as a result, they get rid of those New Testament teachings. They can't fit them into a homogeneous point of view of Scripture And what I call that is a flat reading of Scripture. It's a reading of Scripture that does not recognize the mountains and valleys, the twists and the turns in the history of redemption and the progress of the covenants from what was there in the beginning to what came about through Moses and then eventually what was ratified on the cross in the New Covenant. And look, if you have a weak New Covenant understanding you're just going to think the law is still in effect. It's just as simple as that. But if you think the coming of Christ and the establishment of the new covenant was absolutely earth-shattering on proportion, or I would even argue greater than the coming of the covenant with Moses at Sinai, then you're not going to have this same problem. You're going to realize that discontinuity between what was before and what was after the cross of Christ— is just fine. Not only that, it's to be expected because of the pattern we've seen throughout even the Old Testament of progression in redemption history. And if you want to know more about that, uh, you might want to take a look at Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellam's book Kingdom Through Covenant, which lays out this progressive covenantalism position quite nicely. But I also wanted to address Jerry's point about there being no first century Christianity to get back to. Uh, this is a common objection against restorationism, and it's something that I did want to address. What is the aim? What is the goal? You know, if the restorationist is looking to wind back the clock, to what year are we looking to wind it back to? The enterprise is not quite so simple. What we're actually looking to do is get back to New Testament Christianity, and that's really where our stake is in the ground. Now, for the record, despite many smug Bible introduction notes and websites and professors and commentaries, nobody actually knows when the various books of the New Testament were written, especially the Gospels. With Paul's epistles, we can get some pretty good certainty, but most of the New testament writings, we really don't know when they were written. Most scholars agree they're all written in the first century. So presumably at some point, once these last parts of the New Testament were were written, is when we want to set our time machine to go back, notwithstanding the fact that there was still confusion prior to, during, and after the period of the New Testament. But ultimately, it's not really the humans we're after. It's not really a particular church. It's not like, all right, I'm going to set my time machine for the year 97 A.D. and go to Corinth and see what's going on there. Well, as it turns out, we have evidence that Corinth was just through a situation where they kicked all their leaders out and was in a lot of strife in the 90s. Uh, So is that really where we want to go? Or what about some other churches having some other issue where maybe they don't have all four Gospels yet, they only have three? So, you know, it, it is a very difficult thing if you think about it from the perspective of sociologically, what group, and chronologically, what time do you want to wind the clock back to? But this is, this is to misunderstand restorationism. Restorationism is not primarily about the people, and it's not primarily about the year. Restorationism is trying to get to what God intended in inspiring the books of the New Testament. What is God's point of view when we work all of the Scriptures together, not just the New Testament, by the way, the New Testament and the Old Testament, because you cannot understand the New Testament apart from the Old Testament. As we saw from this very episode with Pastor Victor, it is absolutely necessary to have that background. So what is God getting at in Scripture? And so this really comes down to the the whole idea of inspiration. What was God doing through Christ And what should we believe as a result of what God did through Christ? And I take Rabbi Paul as a reliable teacher of the truths, unpacking the understanding of what Christ's life, death, resurrection, ascension, and future coming, what it all means. I believe that God worked through Paul to give us the various understandings contained within Scripture, especially the epistles that he wrote. So the goal of Restorationism is not to set a particular date and a particular location to synchronize with a particular church, but actually is to synchronize with God and to think his thoughts after him as he originally intended them in the holy writings we call Scripture. But that's only half of Restorationism, as I understand it. The other half, and this is just as important. The other half is living it out today. The other half is looking at our own culture, looking at our own various thought patterns, which is typically called postmodernism, and asking the question how can I live out authentic Christianity, New Testament Christianity in the 21st century? How can that be done? So it's not just exegeting the Bible, it's not just understanding this or that passage in scripture. It's also exegeting the culture and understanding this or that mindset so that we can be faithful to the Great Commission, which is to make disciples of all nations. How are you going to make disciples of a nation? If I drop you from a plane and you parachute down into a remote jungle area, how are you going to make disciples of that people group if you don't learn to speak their language? And part of learning their language is learning their culture, learning how they think about different things, learning how they associate concepts together so that you can present the gospel in an authentic yet relevant way to those people. And so a lot of the work here at Restitutio is also on that second half of the Restorationist enterprise, which is reaching the world today and being able to understand what our biblical beliefs mean in a world where so much of the ethics, especially sexual ethics, is contested. How can we possibly hold to a biblical sexual ethic when in a post burgerfell world where gay marriage is totally considered normal today? How can we understand fellowship in a world that seems to be heading towards the metaverse where we're all strapped into VR goggles? Does that count as fellowship? Does it not count as fellowship? How can you practice humility in a world that values celebrity culture and bold acts that bring fame to people? Many, many more questions like this are important for us to be able to answer. So in my answer to Jerry here, I would say, look, we're trying to get back to what God had inspired in Scripture. Now, as far as, well, how do I know the 27 books of the New Testament are legitimate? Well, I've looked into this. Really, the person that has spoken the most to me on this subject is Eusebius of Caesarea in his church history text. This is kind of like one of his major themes that he likes to talk about throughout. And he's somewhat uncertain on certain books, but that's because of his own biases. He doesn't like eschatology, bottom line. So he, he doesn't really like the book of Revelation, but he does begrudgingly accept it. And uh, so, just a, a quick word about canon. First off, the Gospels were never contested. Uh, Christian groups accepted the Gospels. They were used throughout many different churches. They were associated with either eyewitnesses, actual apostles, that would be the case of Matthew and John, or those who were associated with apostles. In the case of Mark, it would be with Peter. In the case of Luke, it would be with Paul. And obviously Luke says in the very beginning in his introduction that he interviewed eyewitnesses in the production of the Gospel of Luke. And then the Epistles of Paul are ironclad as far as acceptance, usage in the churches. These are non-controversial. We know that pretty early on they were bound together into one collection. So the Gospels and Paul, you know, they're pretty solid right from the beginning. There were some churches that questioned Second uh, Peter Hebrews, Revelation, uh, but eventually these were considered to have the fingerprints of God on them, that they did in fact come from God's inspiration rather than just good Christian literature that was used for edification. Like, for example, 1st Clement, the epistle of Clement of Rome to the church at Corinth is an excellent epistle, in my opinion, Um, very helpful. Uh, But it was not, in the end, considered New Testament, because it wasn't early enough, it wasn't written by somebody associated with an apostle, and it was not read throughout the churches, it was just read in certain churches. Or the Epistle of Barnabas, which I think, honestly, is a train wreck, and I'm glad it didn't get into the New Testament. Or the Shepherd of Hermas, which is even worse. It also didn't get into the New Testament, although some people did think it was New Testament material and ended up including it, but... It was only in certain areas. So this whole idea of Catholicity ended up actually becoming very important. And I I know Jerry accused, I guess, me or Jeff Dibble, I'm not sure who he's accusing here, of uh, just sort of like blithely going along with the Roman Catholics when it comes to what books are in the Bible, uh, especially the New Testament. But the term Catholicity, as I'm using it here, is the idea of universality. In other words, Is this book used throughout the church, whether we look in Egypt or whether we look in the West, whether we look in the Middle East, like around Israel or the Far East, out towards India or Persia? like Where is this book used? Is it used throughout the church? And that was not the sole determining factor, but it was a big part of it when it came to the whole subject of canon. Uh, This is actually an area that I would like to do some more research on so I could present to you, because as far as the church history stuff goes, I do have some insight into the process, but I fear it would take too much time right here at the very tail end of this episode to get into it in any more depth than this. I would recommend to you, though, that if you're interested in this subject, uh, there's two scholars that I follow, and I I think just are so good at this. They do good work on textual criticism as well, but they're really good on canon— The one is called John Mead, and the other is Peter Gurry. And they have a website called textandcanon.org. And you can actually look up on that site. It's a very new site. They're just developing it now, and they have a book that's just about to come out. It's it's not quite out yet, that uh, talks about how we got the Bible, including the subject of canon. But even apart from that book, you can go on their website, and they've got seven different articles on the subject of canon, that are written from a beginner and intermediate level of scholarship and can be very helpful for you, written by a number of different authors. So take a look at that if you are further interested, Jerry or anyone else, in the subject of canon, and that's texancanon.org. Canon, in in this case, has one N instead of two Ns like the large weapon. Uh, C-A-N-O-N is the word canon that we're using here. All right. Well, that brings this episode to a close. Hopefully, hopefully you found this helpful, and uh, we'll continue on next time in our class. Son of David, Pastor Victor is going to get into the whole subject of Solomon, and this is a, I would argue, a very understudied part of the Old Testament that many skip over. You know, people love to study David; they love to study the fall. Of the kingdom around the time of Josiah and his descendants all the way down to Zedekiah, but Solomon is not as well studied, and so I think this is going to be really helpful because this class is called Son of David. Who was the Who was the son of David? Well, that's obviously Jesus, but like before Jesus, Solomon, and uh, so I think we'll see some really cool parallels between Solomon and Jesus coming out in future episodes. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We'll catch you next week. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do that at restitudio.org. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.